Well, we're beginning a a whole new series this morning on family dynamics, that each person makes a difference. And I know getting into a series like this is going to stir up a lot of emotions. And the reason it stirs up so many emotions is there's so much brokenness in our culture. There's so much hurt and pain that has come out of these most significant relationships. So I want to tread carefully, but I want to move forward with a picture and confidence of what God has for us. So even though things don't always shake out or look the way God intended doesn't mean that God's not at work. It doesn't mean that God can't redeem. It doesn't mean that God cannot restore that which has maybe been taken from you or the enemy sought to undermine in your relationships. What further complicates it, not only that we have a lot of patterns that have hurt people, we have a culture now that is speaking wildly against everything to do with marriage and family. I want to take that straight on. So one way to look at this is a picture that I think I've used in different ways, and that is in the bubble or in that circle, those represent people. And when you have people, you have opinions. You have, in this world today, some 7.3 billion opinions. They have ideas about marriage. They have ideas about family. They have ideas about men. They have ideas about women. They have ideas about children. And all of it swirls together in a great stew of confusion. Until... God speaks. And God speaks with love. He speaks with authority. And it's that voice that we want to listen to. It's that voice that will put us on a path that allows us to look at what He intended and what He planned. Even if we do not get it. We need to know what he was thinking. Let me just say one more thing, and then we're going to dive into the word. I'm using the word dynamics. I intentionally steered away from the word roles. Why? Because all of us know that there is a dynamic in the family, an energy, a force, when dad is dad. When dad steps up in a certain way, it can move a family in a certain direction, positively or negatively. Christian culture understands it, and the non-Christian culture understands it. There's so much written about the dad wound. There is the mother force. Moms have a force and energy and a drive in the family that contributes to this dynamic that cannot be erased. And so we're going to explore that. And then 
as children are in a home, they provide another dynamic. So it's not merely a set of roles built on skills, but a plan that God intended. And we're going to go deeper into what God was looking at. If you have your Bible this morning, would you open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I want to use Abraham and Sarah a little bit as a a model for us. Now, if you know their story, you know that they're far from a perfect model. But they had some elements, some essential elements that will help us as we look at family dynamics. Hey, if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And would you just skip with me? I want to hit Isaac, verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Father, I pray that you would speak so that our opinions, our ideas, would take a back seat to yours. We know the voices of our culture are loud, but God, you speak with clarity and authority. Help us to hear your plan, your ideas. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we dive in, let me just say as well, because of the nature of the topic, if you need to step out because something's unsettling, I want you to feel free to do that. I I, I think it's important that we just feel a freedom as we walk through some of these different things that God has to say about marriage and about family, because we're going to start, first of all, with marriage, right? This becomes the foundation. So as we look at it, God established the marriage covenant. He's the one who thought it up. He planned it. He designed it. He knew that there was going to be an infused purpose. But let me just give you a couple words to hold on to as we think about this marriage covenant. First of all, we need to hold on to the word holy. Holy. This means there's no relationship like what God was planning in the marriage covenant. It's beautiful. That's the second word. So not only is it holy, it is beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. When it's lived 
the way God intended it to be. When we're in line, even as fallen, broken, crazy people, when we follow His plan, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. i got to give you a third word. A word that probably is not often attached, but I think is so significant because it allows us to transcend the ideas of this world. And that is this. Marriage is mysterious. Mysterious. And we'll be exploring why it is so mysterious in just a few moments. Now, where does all this get started? It gets started 3,500 years ago. 3,500 years ago, there was this prophet. It was one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. No, it's not Elijah. It's not Ezekiel. It's not Jeremiah. It's Moses. Moses. And what Moses wrote was not his ideas. Moses was moved, it says in Peter, by the Holy Spirit. There was a supernatural work of God so that he was speaking into the heart of Moses. This starts one of the great mysteries of the Bible that we can have a personality like the prophet Moses and yet the very words of God come through a certain personality. So Moses could write, he could think, he could express, but when it finally got written down, with all of that brought together, God supernaturally moved Moses to pen his very words. Moses wrote, understanding his culture. Now Moses lived 1,500 years ago, but he was writing about stuff that God had wanted him and for us today to understand about life and about marriage and about culture. So even though Moses understood his culture, what we call the ancient Near East, what includes countries or nations like Egypt or areas like Mesopotamia, Moses understood it. But make no mistake, Make no mistake, he was writing against the very culture that he was in. So let's go back, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 to see what God was doing. So it begins, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That line right there is a showstopper. Remember I said Moses understood his culture. And in his culture, there were all these gods. And these gods were warring against each other. We call it today polytheism. And nobody could figure out which god was more powerful. No one could say one god was greater than another god. No one could determine any of that in the mythology of the ancient Near East. But Moses' writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is speaking immediately against that culture. In the beginning, God. 
this God that's going to get played out or explained in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he's going to explain to us that this is the one true God, this God of Israel. And he stands over everything. He stands outside of everything. And he is the one who created everything that exists. And he did it effortlessly. That's what's so amazing. The gods of the ancient Near East, you you could never figure out which god's more powerful. And they're always working and straining and trying to war. But not this God. He speaks everything into existence. Amazing. Amazing how this one line speaks boldly and abruptly against the culture of Moses' day. Now why do I say that so authoritatively? It's because Moses was moved by the Holy Spirit. He had insight from God Himself. So when I say God speaks, God breaks into that big bubble, it's that God was moving Moses to write because God knows the beginning from the end. So Moses writes this down. There's no struggle. God speaks very unlike the other ancient Near East documents. And this gets teased out in the rest of the Bible. It's not like this is one line, but this gets said over and over. We we see it in the Psalms. We see it in Romans. We see it in Acts. Over and over it's repeated that this God is the Creator. Even in the chapter we're in, Hebrews 11, makes clear that God created. He spoke things into existence. So as we look at this, We now need to just move down through the book of Genesis a little bit further, Genesis 1. And in 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us make humanity so that they are with dignity and value in His image, it says. After our likeness. Let me finish. It says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So what we begin to see is God made man. Male and female, He made them with distinction. And then he goes on and says he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So there was some purpose, some order, some direction given to humanity that we were to multiply and we were to subdue. We were to have dominion over all that God had created. So God begins moving these things. But so that we wouldn't just copulate with anybody, God in Genesis chapter 2 begins to move us in another direction and that He was going to establish the marital covenant. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, then man said, this at last, as God brings him Eve, Adam Is there, the man Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All of this happened before the great rebellion. And God had this plan of this covenant relationship that would be set apart. And so that it wouldn't be just people copulating to fulfill the command to multiply, but that there would be an established home, a marriage, a covenant. As I've been reflecting on this, there's so much that could be said, but I wanted to just share just three simple things that come out of this. First of all, God designed marriage to be a covenantal, sexual, lifelong union between a man and a woman. So while he created them male and female, he is saying in marriage, in Genesis chapter 2 that we just read, that there is this move by God that would be a covenant to be established under God that the man should leave his father and mother and, and establish his own home. The husband and a wife and here's the mystery, this relationship of the man and the woman was to point to a deeper reality between God and his people. More specifically today, between Jesus Christ and the church. And so when we think we can change the definition of marriage, what we're undermining is the ultimate foundation of it all is that marriage is temporary. It's now a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. Powerful, powerful, mysterious picture as we recognize that God had a plan for marriage that would show the beautiful picture of his church of changed lives. It's precisely because of this that it's not a legal contract. Our culture thinks of marriage as some kind of legal contract. It's not. It's a relationship built on a promise. It's when a man promises, pledges his life to a wife. And a wife promises and pledges her life to a man. It's an amazing covenant that's not merely a legal contract that can be undone. That's why Moses wrote about a one flesh relationship, that it's beautiful and it's significant. And so as our culture begins to say, hey, we can define marriage however we want, or the U.S. Supreme Court overturning 3,500 years of history, thinking they can just do this in a wave, shows how little respect there was for the tradition of marriage and the significance of what God was doing. So it's a covenant. It's a covenant between an, a man and a woman which speaks against homosexual unions, which speaks against polygamy, and speaks against polyamorous relationships. And you could maybe extend this list much further. Secondly, God designed marriage to have a strong, beautiful, and holy sexual part to it, right? That, that these things are linked. So we put boundaries on sex. While our culture wants to remove the boundaries, God is saying they're here for you to protect you, no differently than a parent would give boundaries for their children. 
Don't touch the stove. Don't run into the street. Why? Because they're trying to protect. They're trying to provide a life of joy and happiness versus a life where there could be a crippling effect. God put boundaries on sex and said it was designed for marriage. That's the way he defined it. So any sex, any sex, heterosexual, homosexual, any other deviations of sex outside of the confines of marriage is is wrong. It's outside what God planned and is immoral. Third, God made us male and female. He made us in His image. So we do not dignify people by recreating new kinds of relationships and call them new ways of marriage and say we give someone dignity because they can create their own way of doing marriage. No, people have innate dignity because they're made in the image of God. We all carry that. We're equal in dignity. So men and women individually, separately have full dignity. It's significant because while we recognize the distinction between men and women, we need to say that they're both full with dignity. That's powerful. And so while it's sometimes difficult to say, how is a man different than a woman and a woman different than a man? And we're going to explore that over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to start next week with, with moms and, and how that distinction plays into the family dynamic with its own power and with its own energy. And that the week after we'll go into men and then following we'll look at some children. But there's some distinct differences that take on. But because of the great rebellion that we find in Genesis chapter 3, right? This thing that we call the fall, but it's really rebellion against God. It's a, a pushing away from what He planned. We miss out on it all. Now, Certainly more could be said about marriage. But certainly not less. Certainly what I've tried to do is bring us into a place of of trying to define and put some structure into God's plan for the marriage relationship. But let's hit, going back to Hebrews now, the family dynamics that I want to bring out just briefly here. Family dynamics in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews, we can learn several things, as I said, from Abraham, Isaac, or Isaac, and then also Sarah. In the book of Genesis, if you read Genesis from chapter 1 to chapter 50, it's really built on four people. You got Abraham beginning in the end of chapter 11, then you have Isaac, then you have Jacob, and then you have Joseph. Those are the four patriarchs that the book of Abraham or the book of Genesis is built around. When I look at the book of Genesis, there's a very interesting picture here. First of all, Abraham has about 12 chapters. Jacob has about 12 chapters. Joseph has about 12 chapters. It's Isaac that is given just a little over two chapters. Now that's going to play in because we start with Abraham and Sarah, and in our passage we read just a little bit about Isaiah, Isaac. So, 
let's look at some of these dynamics. So as we look at this, we see in chapter 11, verse 8, we see a couple things. First of all, faith. When it comes to family, faith is significant. And moms and dads, as they bring faith into the family, it creates a new energy, a new dynamic that is so significant. But we see this modeled in this marriage of Abraham and Sarah, this idea of faith. Faith is significant because a home or a marriage without faith never answers the big questions of life. Well, what are the big questions of life? Is there a God? Is there someone that stands above and beyond all that there is? And Abraham believed that. That's what Moses was writing about. Now, Moses lived roughly 600 years before Moses. Again, this is why the Spirit of God moving Moses to write in roughly 1400 B.C. He was writing about Abraham who lived another 600 years before that. But by faith, Abraham believed that there was this God, that there was this God speaking to him. And let's look what happened. He was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Significant. He was leaving his family. Look, he went out not knowing where he was going. You need to see how radical this is. Usually in that culture, it was the family, the protection of being in that family, of hanging together that they could survive. And here God is saying, I want you to leave your family of origin. I want you to leave your home as you know it. And you're going to go to a place that I tell you. Powerful. That's faith. That stands in contrast, can I say, to the way a lot of us live. We live in our safe little bubbles doing what we know is safe. And now and then we'll stick our head out, kind of like a turtle making progress, right? They only make progress when they stick their head out. So I'm just going to stick my head out a little bit and and I'm going to go to church or I'm going to get into a small group or I'm going to start to serve or I'm going to give a little bit of money. What we need to see is that Abraham believed God spoke to him. Do you believe God speaks to you? I loved what was shared a few moments ago from Nate about being surrendered. This heart posture that says, God, you're God over my life, and I surrender to you. Can you imagine when a dad does this, or a mom does this and says, I'm all his. What that does to the children. Mom and dad aren't just going through the motions. Mom and dad believe. And that's what Abraham was doing. It was a faith that took action. He didn't even know where he was going, but he said, God, 
you direct me. So he ends up in a foreign land, living in tents, of course, with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But here's what is so amazing, is that he obeyed. So it's not only that he believed, but he obeyed. Do you let that shake around in your head? Do you understand what's going on here? There's a lot of people that say, I believe in God. There's a lot of people that say, I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior. But when Jesus says, hey, we're going to take this hill, whoa, (laughs) then we say, "Eh, maybe not. Talk about money. It's my money. I'm going to do with it what I want. And so when that still, small voice says, oh, wait a minute, it's my money, and I'd like you to do this. got to tell you, maybe I've said this already, more women came to me and said, I want to give, but my husband is holding back. What grieved my heart was not the money. I could care less about that. It was that there was a person in the marital relationship that was saying, I got to believe God and step out. And there was a person in the marriage that was holding back, saying, whoa. If it was one woman, I'd say, okay. If it was two women, I might say, hmm. But there were several. And it was the same pattern But here we see in this relationship, Abraham obeyed. He stepped out and took it straight on. But let's look at Sarah for a moment because it's not Abraham alone. By faith, Sarah herself received power to receive. She was open to the promise that God that God had. And then she was past childbearing age. But look what happens. She, Sarah, had the same faith. She first of all followed her husband, believing, but considered that God was faithful who had promised. This is what makes a difference in homes. When a mom and dad believe when they believe and they show it over and over. But let's go back to this last passage or this last section because I want you to see one more thing. He, Abraham, and Sarah probably included, they were looking forward to the city that has its foundations and whose designer and builder is God. They had, let me give you the word, hope. It was a life that transcended this world. And too many of us are wearing the cloaks of materialism too tightly. We no longer have a vision or a picture for our life that transcends what we're about here. So what we end up doing is we're buying into everything this world says. 
you got to have this, you got to have that, and we're just chasing after what the world says, and God is saying, wait a minute, there's something way bigger, and Abraham saw it. He saw the city. He saw the things that really mattered. He saw the destiny, and that is what starts shaping a Christian family. Do you give your children a sense of destiny that transcends this world only you can answer that a destiny that moves them beyond the constructs of this world that says there's more than what the eye can see there's more and that's the hope they're looking forward it says too many of us look backwards Abraham looked forward. Was he perfect? No. We could read lots of stories. Abraham at times struggled to believe God. He doubted. Sarah doubted. They questioned. They moved in their own ways. But when everything was said and done, and by the way, more is often said than done, when they acted, they believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness let me just move a little quicker here some family essentials the first one is this god has got to be the center of our homes now that may just go without saying but if god is in the covenant right we're establishing a covenant before god god has to be at the center now, how do I know if God is at the center of your marriage or the center of your home? Three things. Here's the first one. Where do you spend your time? We will not beg and plead for people to serve. It's a statement. A church is a place where God's people come to make an eternal difference because they're looking forward. There are so many places to serve and make an eternal difference. Where are we spending our time? Our kids are watching. Just saying. And can I push a little further? If you're a grandparent, the days of passive grandparenting are over. The day of God-fearing grandparenting is today where you live with intentionality you live knowing there's more than this world shows so kids and grandkids are watching what grandma and grandpa are doing it makes a difference with their time second is money you know in my family growing up we never talked about money Never said anything. I never knew what my dad made. But you know what? I knew what he made. I could tell what he did with his money. I didn't have to ask him. I could tell his attitudes about money. He didn't have to say anything. I could tell it by the house he lived in, the cars that he drove, the way he 
gave spontaneously to people or withheld what he did with the church. I may not have known an exact dollar amount, but your kids are on to you. They're on to you. They know whether you have a heart of generosity, whether you have a picture of giving. And then here's the last. Energy. Energy. Where is your energy spent? So it's not merely time. By the way, good dads, good dads know the most precious thing they can give to their kids is time. They get it. So energy, money, and time. Those are the three. Just where is your energy? Is your energy in your work? Is your energy in building a nice house? Is your energy in wherever? Or is it in the things of God? Let me hit a second one real quickly, and that's grace-based. What separates Christianity out from all the religions of the world is grace. Just grace. There, there, there's a, a bestowal of gifts in the brokenness of life. And this is the beauty. If you're from a broken home, if you yourself have been in a broken relationship, it's grace. God extended grace to you and you can extend grace to others. And families that are grace-based experience and know the power of grace. No other religion has this. Every other religion is you work. You want my love, you better work for my love. You want my care, you want my money, you want my time, you better do what I say to do. Not Christianity. God is a God of grace, and grace-based families are the hallmark of a crucified Savior. And here's the third. Spirit-filled and spirit-directed life. This is a life of faith. This is a life of power. This is a life of energy. These are moms and dads and kids that get together and pray and say, man, I got a bonus this year. What do you want to do with it? What, what is God call? And you bring your whole family into it. Or, hey, I've got an extra week off. How do we want to use our vacation this year? Right? It, it's, it's let the Spirit guide and direct this. These are the things that separate Christian families. These are the things that God is about. We'll go deeper next time because I want to dive into specifically the power, the energy, the dynamic that moms bring. But let's pray. Father, thanks for the truth of your word, the power of your word, the goodness of your word. But God, as you speak, we just got to say we need courage to live out your plan. It's so easy for us to shrink back. It's so easy for us to get pulled by the voices of this culture. God, give us what we need, the grace we need. In light of mistakes that have been made, in light of the future we believe in, God, we need your grace and we need your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.